George Orwell taught that the most effective way to destroy a people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and we're trying to understand the Jewish story. We're sitting in the present, looking at the waves of the past as they roll over us, hoping to catch one and ride it into the future of which we dream. Episode 11, The Indigestible Element. You know, the great rabbinic chronology, Seder Olam Rabbah, says that when the temple was destroyed, the Leviim, the Levites, were singing Psalm 94. God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, show your vengeance. Because despite the progress that the sages at Yavne made in embracing defeat even before it had happened, and crafting exile to be a driver for positive identity, and in building the structures of religion that are going to allow Israel to play the long game in history, the Judeans have neither forgiven nor forgotten their first defeat at the hands of the Romans. And the Flavian house that Vespasian establishes will rule Rome for the next three generations, and bitterness will remain between the Romans and the Jews. And that bitter defeated state is probably best embodied for our story by the Fiscus Judaicus. That's the Jewish tax that Vespasian imposed on all Jews throughout the empire in the wake of the Great Revolt. Not just, by the way, on those who took part in the rebellion itself, but everyone everywhere. He declared that the annual tax paid by all Jews since time immemorial for the maintenance of the temple in Jerusalem would now be devoted to the maintenance of a temple to Jupiter in Rome. It doesn't get any more bitter than that. And when Vespasian died, his son Titus, who actually was the one who burned the city of Jerusalem and the temple, took over. And when Titus died, he passed on this tax to his brother Domitian, who ascended to rule in his place. In fact, Domitian not only kept the tax in place, he expanded it to include not only Jews and converts, but he began to hunt those who concealed the fact that they were Jews or even observed Jewish customs. This was part of a general struggle that Domitian was waging on behalf of the traditional pagan culture of Rome, a losing struggle as we'll see as we move forward in further episodes. Because in addition to persecuting Jews and Christians, he actually twice expelled all the philosophers from Rome. Even his own cousin, the consul Flavius Clemens, was put to death for embracing the Jewish faith. It boggles the mind how a consul, one of the most important positions in Rome, cousin to the emperor, actually chose to join a people who were in such a defeated state. It's also important to note, and we see this in the waves of persecution on Domitian, that it's during this period that Christianity began to formally differentiate itself from Judaism. Even though the Christians would not be recognized as the tolerated religion in the Roman Empire for another two centuries, and they would suffer much martyrdom at the hands of the Romans because of that, nevertheless, now Not only was it too hard to be a Jew, it was a tax liability. And here, we can finally see in Domitian's enforcement of the Jewish tax, the full evolution of conversion as a means of membership into Am Yisrael, because even people who converted, who didn't fight in the revolt, who had never actually set foot in Judea, were now subject to the Fiscus Judaicus. Geography as the key to Judean identity faded after the destruction of the first temple in the Babylonian exiles we spoke about. It was replaced first by genealogy, 
amongst the returnees in Ezra's time, as we mentioned, the importance they placed on their family tree. And now, the core to the Jewish identity will be the entry into the covenant through law, as especially as represented through the sign in the flesh, circumcision. Now, after the murder of Domitian in 96, the Emperor Nerva ascended to the imperial throne. He actually relaxed the rules of the tax and applied it only to those who openly practiced Judaism. And he struck a coin which was in opposition to the coin originally struck by Vespasian after the destruction of the temple that said, Judea capta, right? Judea is captured. Can you imagine the bitterness of a Jew somewhere in the far-flung province of Hispania paying a tax for a place he may have never seen with a coin that said that he was defeated? But now, Nerva, we have these coins in our hands, struck a coin that said the removal of the wrongful accusation of the Fiscus Judaicus. There was a lightening of the load, which unfortunately was not going to last. It's actually unknown if or when this tax was ever formally revoked. And in fact, it was actually revived in the Middle Ages in the 14th century by the Holy Roman Emperors. But either way, Nerva went the way of all flesh and was succeeded by his adopted son Trajan, the great soldier emperor, who, when he launched his campaign against Parthia, that perennial enemy on the eastern boundaries of the, born, of the Roman Empire, right, the Persian kingdom, when he launched that campaign in 114, where his advance actually represented the high watermark for the expansion of the Roman Empire ever. Because the Romans had always believed in principle that their empire was unlimited. Trajan basically decided to put his money where his mouth is and try to make that idea a reality. It will be during this campaign that the Quitos War, also known as Merit Hatzfutzot, the Exile Rebellion, took place. I'm willing to bet that very few people who are listening to this now have ever heard of it. But this lesser-known round of the wars between the Romans and the Jews may have actually been its most bloody chapter. The initial sparks of the rebellion occurred in the city of Cyrene. It's located in modern-day Libya in North Africa. It was a Hellenistic city that had actually held a population of Jews since the earliest time of the Ptolemaic Empire. However, while under the Ptolemies, the Jewish inhabitants actually enjoyed equal rights as they did in Alexandria, as we spoke about a few episodes ago. When the city was created a Roman province in the first century before the Common Era, the Jews suddenly found themselves oppressed by a now autonomous and much larger Greek population. So for some reason, in the year 115, the Jews of Cyrene rose up in an outburst of religious rebellion against the local pagans. They began to destroy temples to Hecate, Jupiter, Apollo, Artemis, Isis, as well as every single civil structure that was associated with Rome. The uprising was led by one Lucoas, a bit of a mysterious figure. And in fact, the whole history of this rebellion is told in fragments in a couple of Christian historians, as well as Cassius Deo, the great Roman historian of the late 2nd century. Cyrene actually, in this sense, becomes a major site for the ongoing territorial identity struggle between the Jews and the pagan Greeks throughout the Hellenistic cities. Something we mentioned long ago, that in the year 38, when Agrippus passed through Alexandria in 38, that riots broke out. It appears that the leader of this rebellion, Lucos, may have actually had messianic pretensions, as Eusebius 
the church historian, says he called himself a king. Whatever he called himself, his initial successes were quite impressive. So impressive, in fact, that the fervor spread to Alexandria, where more temples were sacked and even the tomb of Pompeii was destroyed. Rioting and street battles began to spread throughout Egypt into Cyprus. The entire eastern empire was alight. And Trajan, meanwhile, deep in Parthian territory, was actually forced to withdraw his army in order to put down the revolt. So he turned the eastern armies over to Lucius Quietus and sent Marcius Turbo, the head of another force, to repress the revolt in North Africa, which he did with exceptional brutality. In fact, Eusebius reports that the war left Libya so depopulated that a few years later, new colonies actually had to be established just to maintain viable settlement. There weren't enough people. And if that's not bad enough, Cassius Dio, as we mentioned, the late 2nd century Roman historian, gives the following description, speaking of what the Jews would do to their enemies. They would cook their flesh, make belts for themselves of their entrails, anoint themselves with their blood, and wear their skins for clothing. Many they sawed in two from the head downwards. He goes on and says, For this reason no Jew may set foot in that land, meaning in North Africa, but even if one of them is driven upon the land by force of the wind, he's put to death. Now what are we supposed to do with such a horrific description? I mean, this may be, if it's false, the first written blood libel. On the other hand, we have to consider what exactly was happening during the Quito's War. What we do know is that this was written, as I said, in the late 2nd century, already in the light of not only the Great Revolt in 66, not only the Quito's War that we're discussing now in 115, but also the Barcojo Rebellion, which we'll speak about at the end in 135, meaning the three wars between the Romans and the Jews fueled Cassius Deo's description of the Jews as bloodthirsty and, specifically, indigestible, stiff-necked refusal to accept the Roman rule. And Cassius Deo actually is the one who cements this notion into Roman history. More on this shortly. Eusebius, the Christian historian, goes on to say that once Trajan had retreated, he suspected that the Jews in Mesopotamia would also rise up against his garrisons that he'd left behind. And he ordered Lucius Quietus to clean them out of the province. I quote, he organized a force and murdered a great multitude of the Jews there. For this reform, he was appointed governor of Judea by the emperor. Truth is, it's quite likely that the large populations of Bavel had no desire at all to live under Roman rule. They'd been seeing what was going on in the Greco-Roman culture and were quite happy to live under the Persians. And then there seems to be some evidence they began to attack the garrison and supply lines which Trajan had established behind his conquering front. Either way, Lucuas had fled North Africa for Lod, that's Lydda to the Romans, in Judea, with Marcus Turbo in hot pursuit. And Quietus, now command of the legions of Judea as well, lay siege to the city. And the suffering there became so great that the elderly Nasi, or the head of the Sanhedrin, Rabban Gamaliel II, who we spoke about in the last episode, the leader of the rabbis at Yavna, was actually shut up with them in the siege. And he declared a fast on Hanukkah, something which the other rabbis rejected. Nevertheless, load was taken, and many more Jews were executed. 
They were known as the Jorge Malchut, the Martyrs of Lod, and we'll speak about the importance of that model at the end of the episode. But for now, just remember that this is only the second of the Jewish rebellions, which will occur between 66 and 135 CE. Meanwhile, during these 70 years, the rest of the Roman Empire is enjoying the heart of the period known as Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a period of relative stability from the rise of the empire until the crisis of the 3rd century. And in specific, these years are known as the period of the five good emperors. That's Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius, Pius, and Marcus Aurelius. Though the term was coined by Machiavelli in the early 16th century. Nevertheless, we see in the name, as well as Gibbon's description saying that the Roman Empire was governed at this point by absolute power under the guidance of wisdom and virtue, that apparently... Israel saw it otherwise, and in fact, this is definitely when Israel becomes the indigestible element of the Roman Empire. And in the wake of the final upheaval, which is yet to come, there's going to be a desire to completely wipe them out, both in name and in flesh. But this is nothing new, the refusal to be part of the dominant culture. We know that this struggle began with the Greeks they objected to the particular chosenness and Israel's model of ongoing revelation and partnership with creation embodied in both the brief and circumcision and oral law. Meaning, they saw us as both an aesthetic evil, right? We were marring the flesh, as well as a philosophical opponent. We believed in redemption, in progress to time, in the ability, as I said, to be partners in the unfolding of divine will. And so the Greeks had their shot at wiping us out. And Rome will soon also want to wipe out physical Israel because we are politically intractable. We refuse to play the game. And therefore, the sign in the flesh will actually be outlawed and the masters of the oral law pursued ruthlessly to the death. Finally, the last phase will occur when Christianity emerges as the inheritor of Greek culture and the Roman state together. Remember, Circumcision and the binding nature of the oral law are already anathema to them when they gain this power. Therefore, the political indigestibility which the Romans saw in the Judeans will become the obstinate refusal of the Jews to accept the revelation of salvation as Christianity sees it. It's not just the historical fact that the Jews refused to bow, which gets cemented into Roman history at this point. This is actually also the phase at which Jewish history becomes a new lens through which to understand world history. Similar to what happens with feminist history and black history in the academy when they emerge as a completely different way of knowing Western culture. It's an alternative frame of reference that actually develops in concert with what's traditionally called history. Meaning it's not a subset of history. It's a lens through which everything we know can be re-examined. Mm. Call it the history of otherness. Call it a competing narrative in that exegetical battle that will happen between Judaism and Christianity down through the ages about who's telling the right story and whose version of the past will get us to the future of which we dream, or call it really the first history of a colonized people. Yet any way you look at it, Jewish history will cast a very different light on Western culture. A story to demonstrate. I remember when I was in ninth grade, sitting in world history class, my teacher began to speak about the Crusades. Now, I went to public school, but nevertheless, I had a high-quality supplementary Jewish education. 
And as he began to speak about the formation of Christian Europe, the nature of the population dynamics, the challenges of primogenitor and inheritance, and etc., 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 and the war between Islam and Christianity, at a certain point, toward the end of the class, I raised my hand and said, excuse me, that's now how I heard the story. Because I knew that there was a whole other aspect of the brutality of the Crusaders, which he had never mentioned. This will be the way in which Jewish history functions in relationship to Western history. Well, back into the flow. So, Hadrian never did actually succeed in conquering the Parthians. Because not only did he have to draw back in response to the rebellion of the Quito's War, in 117, he fell ill and died. The Emperor Hadrian succeeded him less than a year later in 118, while the fires of the Quito's War were still smoldering. Now, Hadrian was known to be tolerant of the Jews. He might even have been called a philo-Semitic, someone who actually was positive toward Jewish culture. And he certainly had a great desire to bring peace to his eastern frontier. And several Christian later sources, as well as the Midrash Breshit Rabbah, which is the oldest Midrash we have, was composed, we believe, in the land of Israel in the 3rd century. Both indicate that in the first year of his reign, Hadrian actually went so far as to grant permission for the Jews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Midrash and Breshi Rabbah says that the Jews began to pour into Eretz Israel in their excitement, exchange money, gather, gather supplies, everything. But it goes on to say that the Samaritans, the Shomronim, pulled a move reminiscent of many attempts in the past. If you recall, they are the ones who incited Alexander the Great against the Jews in the 4th century before the Common Era. They were also the ones in the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel who roused the Persian emperor against the returnees in their efforts to rebuild Jerusalem. They now turned to Hadrian and convinced him that to rebuild Jerusalem would guarantee rebellion. When he replied, I can't exactly rescind my promise, they said, no, it's, it's not necessary. Just tell them to build it on a slightly different spot or tell them to make it five cubits longer or five cubits shorter, something, of course, which was completely unacceptable according to the law. Now this he did, and the Jews refused. Now, the masses of the disappointed who had gathered in Judea in their fervor and excitement, according to the Midrash, were only barely held back from war by Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah. But it's clear that it was from this point in 118 that the preparations for the coming conflict began. Cassius Dio, again, Roman historian from the late 2nd century, actually says that it's at this time the Jews began to dig the tunnels and connect the caves, which would actually become underground cities by the time the revolt erupted, making the rebels all but impossible to find for more than three years. Of course, if he'd been a Christian historian like Eusebius, he never would have made the mistake of thinking that the tunnels actually began then. Because if you look in the book of Judges, it says very clearly that the caves and tunnels which riddle the hills around here, first of all, began in karstic topography. People are interested in the geology can shoot me an email. But they actually began to be hollowed out in the time of Gideon and the Midianites. But either way, the preparations had begun. And in approximately 130, Hadrian toured the eastern provinces, Egypt, Syria, and in passing through Jerusalem, it's said that he almost wept at the sight of desolation of what had been such a noble city. And he announced his intention to rebuild it 
Name it Aelia Capitolina and place a temple to Jupiter on the ruins of Herod's temple. When word of this got out, the whole of Judea rose in revolt. And as we know, every good revolt needs a leader. This one actually had two. Shimon Bar Kochba, or Bar Koziba, which may have been his actual name, was the military leader of the rebellion. And he's a figure shrouded in legend, and almost no details of his life are known. He was so legendary, in fact, that until in 1960, Yigal Yadin unearthed the cache of letters from a cave in Nachalchever overlooking the Dead Sea, there were many who doubted that he was a genuine historical figure at all. Nevertheless, we have many Midrashic discussions of him. They describe his miraculous strength, his semi-miraculous doings, and his brutal harshness. They also give us an interesting insight into his theology by saying that when he and his men went out to battle, their prayer was, O God, neither help nor discourage us. Meaning, we can handle this one, just don't get in our way, O Lord. And it's very clear from the Midrashim that the rabbis were not overly fond of this military redeemer. In fact, he seemed to be the ultimate expression of the zealots who had burned Jerusalem from within only 70 years before. All the rabbis, that is, but one. Because the Bar Koch revolt would likely have been just another Kitos war, a bloody fragment of historical memory, if it weren't for the spiritual leader of the rebellion, the one who declared Bar Kochba to be the Messiah. And that was none other than the giant of Torah, Rabbi Akiva himself. The Yerushalmi Talmud in Tani says the following, Every Shimon Bar Yochai taught, Akiva, my master, used to interpret the verse, A star goes forth from Jacob, that's a Kochba, as Koziba goes forth from Jacob, changing the verse to match the name of the military leader. It goes on to say that Rabbi Akiva, when he saw Bar Koziba, said, This is King Messiah. But interestingly, Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta said back to him, Akiva, grass will grow on your cheeks, and still the son of David will not have come. Now, by applying the prophecy of Bilin, given back in the 24th chapter of the book of Numbers, a couple thousand years before the events at, at, at hand, but by applying that to the events happening in his own day, Rabbi Akiva is actually employing a type of of literary midrachic device that we associated earlier with the Essenes. We called it Pesher. Again, Pesher is what it is to search through the words of the prophets and find in them hints that clarify the events of the day in order that we understand the Eshkaton, the end of days, how the infinite will of God will play out in the particular details of the history which you are living now. Not only, by the way, was Rabbi Akiva indulging in a dangerous midrashic method that had brought disaster perhaps already once, by crowning Bar Kohol Messiah, he was also throwing fuel on the fire that was still smoldering from the Kitos Rebellion. All the elements left from the Great Revolt even burst into flame once again. The spirit of the Maccabees, that need to serve God, through sovereignty over particular territory was now combined with a fiery messianism and 
not a small dose of end of days energy. Now, we already mentioned in the last episode that the notion had spread well throughout the East that the ruler of the world would soon come out of Judea. In fact, we spoke about how both Rabbi Yochan and Josephus used this to their advantage in their dealings with Vespasian. And we spoke a few minutes ago about at least one failed messiah, Lucas of the Quito's War. Furthermore, we know that Christianity had turned away completely from the socio-political model of Messiah as king of flesh and blood. So much so, in fact, that there is a Christian tradition that recalls Bar Kokhba as a brutal bandit who forcibly circumcised Jewish Christians who had abandoned the physical covenant. What is certain is that the Christians did not join in his uprising. There was no more room in their worldview for a human redeemer. And that decision, combined with the Roman persecution of the Jews, which stretched all the way back to that Fiscus Judaicus, that tax we mentioned earlier, together really aided the final split between Christianity and Judaism, which is happening at this point in time. And the sages? Well, they were split on the issue of whether the Redeemer was going to be flesh and blood or some mystic event. And the Bar Kokhba rebellion is actually a turning point in their discussion, because you can just hear the echoes of rabbinic disdain for anyone who was Doche Haketz, who tried to force the end. Grass will grow from the sockets of your skull, Akiva, before the Messiah comes. And in fact, there's actually a deeper hint of their attitude specifically toward Bar Kokhba in that Midrash, because there he's called Bar Koziba, which as I said, might actually be his name but could also be interpreted as the son of disappointment, meaning he's the one that let us down. And yet, Rebbe Akiva. Now, we're going to have to discuss the exact contribution of this giant to the Torah in the next episode. But for now, suffice it to say that Rebbe Akiva is the bridge over which the oral law will pass in his generation. I'll give you a story to illustrate from the Gemara Menachot. Rabbi Huda said in the name of Rav, when Moshe ascended on high to get the Torah from God, he found the Holy One, blessed be he, engaged in affixing crowns to the letters of the Torah. Anyone who's ever seen the traditional script of the Torah as it's written in the scroll knows that many of the letters have uh, decorative crowns that rise off from the tip tops of the letters. Moshe says, <laughs> Why are you delaying? And God answered him, Well, because there'll come a man at the end of many generations Akiva ben Yosef by name, who will learn out from each point of these crowns heaps and heaps of laws. Wow, says Moshe. Let me see him. So Kodesh Baruch says to him, Okay, turn around. Moshe turned around, and he went and sat down behind eight rows of students. Now it's important to know that in the rabbinic academies, there was a meritocracy. The, the, the most intelligent, most accomplished students sat in the front row and then less so in the next, and so on. So Moshe is actually sitting in the back of the class. So he sat down and listened to Rabbi Akiva's discourse on the law. And he wasn't able to understand a word. The Gemara says he was quite ill at ease. But when they came to a certain subject, and the disciples said to the master, From where do you know this? What do you think Rabbi Akiva said? Ah, this is Torah Moshe Misenai. This is the law as it was given to Moshe at Sinai. And suddenly, Moshe was comforted. So he turned back to the Holy One and said, Rabbi Olam, you have such a man, and you give the Torah through me? God said, be silent. 
That's my decree. And then Moshe said, You've shown me his Torah. Show me his reward. Turn around, said God. And what he saw, we'll speak about at the end. But if Rabbi Kiva was so great, then what was he thinking backing a failed Messiah? In order to understand that, I think it's important really to embrace the fact that the sages never really made a decision. They never really abandoned the model of Messiah as a physical political redeemer, though they may have pushed it off to an indeterminate messianic future. And in fact, a thousand years after these events, Maimonides, the Rambam, the great sage of the 12th century, asked and answered this same question with a tremendous chiddush, an incredible innovation in thought. He says that anyone who liberates Israel from foreign rule, rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem, and returns the practice of the Torah to its glory has Chezkat Mashiach, the presumption that he's on the right track, and therefore his success will prove his messianic nature. Now, I understand this as a partner strategy to Rabbi Yochanan's decision to save a little bit that we discussed at the end of the last episode. Remember, I don't believe that Rabbi Yochanan was playing it small and just taking what he could get when he told Vespasian that he wanted the sages at Yavna instead of telling him to go away and saving Jerusalem. He was reading the writing on the wall and playing the long game. And as you recall, I hope, it was Rabbi Akiva's voice that applied to Rabbi Yochanan in that moment that God turns the wise backwards. Right? Because Rabbi Akiva actually represents the other half of this strategy. You must save a little when you can, but you got to go for broke when the time is right. Because both of them believe that we're playing to win. But unfortunately, Rabbi Akiva went for broke and failed. Horrified by the third uprising in 70 years, Hadrian was now determined to crush Judea once and for all. He summoned Julius Severus, the greatest general of Rome at the time, all the way from Britain to conduct the campaign, and equipped four legions based out of Syria to do it. A guerrilla war now raged through Judea for three and a half years. The rebels refused direct engagement. They played hit-and-run tactics. They hid in their underground strongholds centered around the city of Betar. But the struggle was doomed from the outset. Rome, after all, was here to stay, and these were the ones who did not get that choice piece of political wisdom. And when, after three and a half years, Betar finally fell, the slaughter was horrific. Cassius Dio actually reports, 580,000 men were slain in the various raids and battles, and the number of those that perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. Thus, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate. The Midrash in Echarabah says that when the Romans broke the siege and made it into Betar, they slew the inhabitants until their horses waded in blood up to the nostrils, and the blood rolled along and flowed out to the sea, staining it for a distance of six kilometers. Hadrian was absolutely determined after Betar fell, that there would never be a fourth Jewish-Roman war. And furthermore, he saw clearly that it was the life of the Torah that allowed the Jews to maintain their identity in the face of dominant Roman society. 
And so he reached back to the Hanukkah story and took a move from Antiochus' playbook. Hadrian banned most of the core practices of Judaism, circumcision chief amongst them, as well as learning Torah, tefillin, mezuzah, and he began to hunt down, one by one, the rabbis who could preserve the Torah. He forbid Jews from even approaching Jerusalem, a ban which would actually not be lifted until the city was conquered by Islam in the 7th century. The Temple Mount was plowed over, and Ela Capitolina, the Roman city, was indeed built with the Temple of Jupiter at its heart. And, in perhaps the most subtle and far-reaching move, Hadrian literally wiped Judea off the map. Remember, the Romans are the keepers of knowledge at this point in history in the Mediterranean. If there are maps around, it's likely that they made them. Hadrian ordered that all the maps of the empire erase Judea and replace it with Palestina, in order that it evoke the Philistines who he believed were their original inhabitants of the land and not the Jews. So we were Jews now, no longer Judeans, because if someone asked you who you were and you said, I'm a Jew, and they said, where are you from? And you said, Judea, and they said, where's that? You have no map to point to. And though the sages would have managed to embrace this exile, in powerful and productive ways, and that religion would be their primary vehicle, our return home to a place where we could stand and call ourselves the masters of our destiny would have to wait for another 1,700 years. You know, the Seder Olam Rabbah actually ends with the Bar Koch revolt, and the Mishnah in Sota in the ninth chapter calls this the last war. So Bar Kokhba died in the siege of Atar. But what about Rebbe Kiva? Well, in order to appreciate his death and its significance, we have to understand the idea of martyrdom. Martyrdom is, in a sense, the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God winning out over the kingdom of flesh and blood. Remember the book of Daniel. Yeah, this is a story about Daniel. He's a young boy. He's far from home, but he has a dream. He has a vision, and in that vision, history is no longer an embodiment of the will in God in kingdoms of flesh and blood, but is rather a mask over the divine will. We saw that golden head of Babylon that merited to take kingship away from Israel. We saw the silver arms of Persia that brought Ezra and the returnees back to Jerusalem. We encountered the bronze body of Greek culture, which upholds Western culture even to this day. And now we are in the midst of the iron legs of the legions, which will spread that culture all over the known world. And also remember that martyrdom plays a crucial role in the book of Daniel. He was, after all, the one that went into the lion's den. Now, martyrdom is powerful, but it's a poor long-term strategy for the shaping of religious identity. Its success kind of does away with that. And therefore, it's the story of martyrdom that will actually play the most critical role in shaping our understandings of ourselves. And the stories of the Horge Malchut, as we mentioned, actually appear throughout rabbinic literature in many places we're referring to many times. But there's one well-known midrash which weaves together nearly a hundred years of war and persecution into the story of the Ten Martyrs. It's called Ela Ezkara. These I recall. You can find it at the end of the repetition of the temple service, which appears in the additional 
prayer on Yom Kippur, that's the Avoda and the Musaf, and also in the keynote in the liturgical poems of mourning that we say, at least Ashkenazim say, on the 9th of Av. And here's a little aside for those of you who pray the traditional liturgy, and you want to know how deep this story actually goes. The Arizal says that when we say El Nekamot Hashem, El Nekamot Hafiyah, that verse we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, during Pesuki de Zimra, we're actually calling on God to take vengeance for the sake of these ten martyrs. But even if you don't have any idea what I just said, you can understand that this Midrash brings together the deaths of sages from the Great Revolt, from the Quito's War, from Barcojo's Rebellion, and everything in between. It is the summation of the religious struggle and the consequence in martyrdom of all of the Roman Jewish wars. And despite the gruesome details of a Midrash like this, its goal is actually to motivate people, to motivate them to choose life. Because if these great giants were willing to die for the Torah, then we can at least live for it. And furthermore, if you look deeply into these Midrashim, you'll see that the rabbis understood full well that ultimately living for what you believe in is greater than dying for it, and more difficult, because the ecstatic, passionate moment in which you're called upon to give all, in a sense, is actually easier than the daily task of living the Torah. Because the life of the Torah can be lived as an ever-conscious engagement with everything that is, through law and through story, an embrace and embodiment of the divine will in my every action, or it can be the death of a thousand cuts, a painful life, a failed realization, inadequacy, grinding repetition, and of course, mockery from a dominant culture that believes that you're just mistaken. And therefore, these Midrashim can't just be a story that we tell. They have to become the life we live. They have to be an access to a life which is actually larger than our own, which we can return to as a constant wellspring for inspiration in action and life. And the way in which this Midrash is crafted, as well as the historical journey it makes into the liturgy and the lives of Am Yisrael, is actually the ultimate expression of the power of Midrash at all to transform exile into a crucible for identity. The specific story of Rebbe Kiva's death actually can be found in the Gemara and Brachot on 61b. Our rabbis taught, once the wicked government issued a decree forbidding the Jews to study and practice Torah, Papas Ben Yehuda came and found Rebbe Kiva publicly gathering people to study and occupying himself with Torah. He said to him, Kiva, aren't you afraid of the Romans? Rebbe Kiva applied with the following parable. He said, A fox was once walking alongside a river. He saw fish swarming from one place to the other, and he said to them, What are you afraid of? What are you fleeing? And they replied, We're fleeing the nets cast for us by men. So the fox said to them, Well, why don't you come up onto dry land, so that you and I can live together in the way that my ancestors live with your ancestors? And the fish replied, Are you the one they call the smartest of animals? You're not clever. You're a fool. If we're afraid while we're in the element in which we live, how much more in the element in which we would die? And so Rabbi Akiva looked at him and said, So it is with us. If such is our condition when we sit and study the Torah, of which it's written, For that is your life and the length of your days, if we go and neglect it, how much worse off shall we be? It's critical to understand that what Rabbi Akiva was saying is that the Torah is actually our life 
And what you know as history, Papas, is just its context. Don't give up on life in order to change your context. The Gemara goes on and says that soon after, Rabbi Kiva was arrested and thrown in prison. And when he was taken out for execution, it was the hour for the recital of the Shema, for that great declaration, not that there is only one God, but rather that God is one. And while they raked his flesh with iron combs, he was accepting upon himself the kingship of heaven. And his students cried out to him, Master, Ad Khan, even now? And he said to them, My whole life, my whole life, I've been bothered by this verse. When it says, right? Which I interpret as, not just with all your soul, but as even if he takes your soul. And I've been saying to myself, when shall I have the opportunity of fulfilling this? And now that I have the opportunity, shouldn't I do it? And he stretched out the word echad, one, until he died while saying it. And a batkol, the echo of a divine voice, rang out and proclaimed, Ashrecha Akiva, happy are you, O Akiva, that your soul has departed with the word one. Rabbi Akiva was a master of the tools of Mishnah and Midrash, law and story. In his last breath, he not only affirmed his commitment to the kingdom of God over the kingdom of flesh and blood, he affirmed his commitment to the unity of his experience in history. The Romans were passing context, he says. God is what's real. He knows that there are troubled times ahead for his students. Perhaps he couldn't quite realize how long those troubles would last, but Rabbi Akiva left them with an unshakable story of the supremacy of the kingdom of God. But remember, God is a partner in this, not a passive observer. He's always got a hand in the story. And so our sages teach us that on the very day which Rabbi Akiva was martyred, the leader who would actually guide the next phase of the Jewish story was born. That's Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, the redactor of the Mishnah. I just want to thank everybody who helps make this show possible. You know, there are 28 people who give their hard-earned money so that I can produce this and keep it free and syndicate it to as many people as I can reach. If you want to join them, you can go to www.patreon.com and you can find my page there and you can pledge per podcast. I also want to thank Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L giving me a platform from which I can reach such a broad swath of the Jewish people. I want to thank the folks at the Land of Israel Network for helping me get out to the broader world. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Boyer, and this is The Jewish Story.